All right, let's open up our Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. And uh, it used to be that names meant something. You know, every, every name had a meaning behind it. And some people know what they are, but a lot of people don't. I mean, for example, Fletcher. If your last name was Fletcher, it meant arrows. Okay? I picked a few others. Cooper made barrels. Okay? Smith. Can you guess? Horseshoes. You know, things like that. So, you know, all, all this was lost today. Pittman, my last name, they dug pits. I looked that up. Yeah, it's just kind of what they, you know, what they, they were known for back in Wales, I think it was. Miners, yeah, but they dug and things like that. So, you know, apart from names like that, we also have epithets, titles and nicknames. For example, in the New Testament, James and John were known as the sons of thunder because of their exuberant attitude. They were known as the sons of thunder. As a matter of fact, the best illustration is Jesus himself. Titles were given him throughout his ministry. For example, bread of life, light of the world, wonderful counselor back in Isaiah, prince of peace, good shepherd, man of sorrows, on and on and on. So, so you get the idea. But in our passage this morning, we have the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, give Jesus the title, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So let's stand and read our passage together this morning. It is 15 verses all together, verses 19 through 34, and we will read it. Basically, it's two days this takes place, okay? Let's just read through it first. This is the testimony of John, verse 19, when the Jews sent him to priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you, so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you have to say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not Christ or Elijah nor the prophet? John answered him, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 15 verses packed two days. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. 
identifying the Savior as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Father, and the one who baptizes the Holy Spirit. Father, take these wonderful living words of life and write them on our heart this morning as they are taught and proclaimed and explained. May we be eager to learn. May we be eager to apply. May we be eager to dive into your word this morning as a part of our worship of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The outline is quite simple. There's just two points, and you're going to see it right here, right off the bat, in verses 19 through 28 is one section where they come and interrogate John the Baptist. And then verse 29, he says, the next day. So they have part two is verses 29 through 34. And in that section is where John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. He gives us his mission there. And he also talks about in verse 33, he's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I want to conclude the sermon focusing on that this morning, on those last two things, the Lamb of God and baptism of the Holy Spirit. But for right now, I want us to look at verses 19 through 28, and we're going to go through this pretty first section relatively pretty, pretty fast. So let's look at 19 through 28. Here John is confronted with a fact-finding committee of the religious establishment. We, we really know who sent these guys because of verse 28. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Because of verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So you read verse 19, these, these guys coming, this fact-finding committee, was ultimately sent by the Pharisees themselves, and they are inquiring, hey, we're hearing about this guy, they're calling John the Baptist, who, who really is he? And so they're asking two things. Number one, who are you? And then number two, what gives you the right to baptize? Okay? So we see that going on in verses 19 through 28. After denying that he was the Christ, after denying he was Elijah, and even the prophet, which is a quote back in Exodus, okay, they expected some kind of, of prophet to come along. He tells them that he is not any of them, but then he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. In other words, he's not just a freelance writer. He's not just a freelance preacher. Isaiah 43 says, a voice calling, clear the way of the Lord for in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. John tells him who he is. What I want to do is just for a moment, think about this for a minute. John the Baptist is saying, I'm fulfilling scripture. We often gloss over that. We don't gloss over it when it comes to Jesus, but here's kind of an obscure passage. And it tells us something. And, and I want it to sink in. Here, the, the Roman world is going on. Life is going on. People are living everyday, normal lives in that context. And here God is in his sovereignty and his providence working. You and I go about our everyday lives. This world is going on and on and on. You listen to the news. And yet God is working. They didn't know this at first. Everybody was just living their lives. God had been silent for at least 400, 450 years. Life was going on. People were getting up, going to work. 
It was different, obviously, but the same mentality. They had children, that, you know, the same mindset as we have today. And yet here, God tells us in his word that he was fulfilling his word. Take comfort in that. When you think God is not around, when you look at the world around you, and you look at your own little circle of world, and you think God is nowhere to be found, he's working. Not because I see it with my eyes or even hear it with my ears, but because the word of God tells me. That's why we walk by faith. It's not a blind faith. When it says walk by faith, we walk by faith in the word of God, not by sight. So here it is. Just life is going on with these. So in the Roman world, even with the Jews, just things are just happening. You know, they're just living life. All of a sudden, God's working. They didn't even know it. The next thing they do, and next thing they do in verses 24 through 28, is they inquire about his activity. First, they inquire about his person, that is John the Baptist. He tells them who he is by quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. And then they go, okay, if you're not Jesus, you're not Elijah, you're not the prophet, then what are you baptizing for? What are you doing this for? Who are you to baptize? Now, notice what he says. They asked him in verse 25, why then are you baptizing if you're not these guys? Verse 26, John answered him saying, I baptize in water. I baptize in water. And that's all he says. Notice John, the Baptist, never brought attention to himself. Every time, even in verses 19 through 24, are these quick, short little answers. I'm not him, no. I baptize in water, but him. This, about to, but him. I want you to focus on him. That was his ministry. That was his work. I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It's he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What we have is a contrast going on here between the Pharisees and John the Baptist, between pride and humility. And their enthusiasm for what was important to them, to the religious order, the order of the Pharisees, they were made them so oblivious to the coming of their own Messiah. They were so concerned with stature, they were so concerned with who this guy was, that they missed out on their own Messiah. Pride. How tradition can blind people. That's what this reminds me of. Tradition can keep people from seeing the truth. Tradition's not bad. It becomes bad when you have to have it or else. I'm out of here. Tradition can become an idol. Tradition can be good when it's kept in its proper perspective, in its proper place. But obviously here it wasn't. Here's an example that if you want to turn back a couple of Gospels to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. Again, we're talking about the religious establishment. We're talking about the Pharisees. And, they, and remember, their, their tradition for over hundreds of years has been established. More and more established, I should say. And they got more and more comfortable in it. And tradition, their own tradition that they had created became their own standard of spirituality. 
It became their own standard of whether one was right with God or not. It was now based upon their tradition. They took the law of God in the Old Testament and developed their traditions with it, and now the traditions became their focus, not really the law of God. Are you with me? Chapter 7, verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that is Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Yes, they had elders back then, okay? But then they weren't good ones. They're referring to Jesus and his disciples eating without washing their hands in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's a tradition that they maintained. It's a tradition that they had to have. If they didn't follow through with it, they weren't spiritual because they were concerned with what was on the outside. Are you with me? They were concerned with appearance. They were concerned with if anything outside of them would come into them and defile them. They did not understand that they were already defiled from within. You could eat a glob of dirt, and it's not going to make you any worse because you're already defiled. But let's go on, a few more verses. Look at, look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Ouch. What does that say? People can talk about him. They can talk spiritual Christian lingo. They can talk Christianity. They can talk the right talk. But meanwhile, their heart can be totally somewhere else. That's being hypocritical. That means you're acting. You're not real. It's not sincere. Their heart is far away. Verse 7, so, but in vain do they what? Worship me. Teaching his doctrines, teaching biblical doctrines, the precepts of men. They're taking the precepts of men, the traditions of men, and and treating them as if they were biblical doctrine. And, And holding the both up at the same time as having the same authority. And Jesus is saying, no. Back down your traditions. And we go on. For example, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the, there's the word, tradition of men. You see what was going on here? You see what was going on when back in John chapter 1 when the Pharisees approached John the Baptist or sent these men, I should say, to John the Baptist and, and asked him these questions of who are you and why are you doing these things. This is the mindset that they had. They were more concerned with outward appearance and their position in society than they were in people's souls and hearts. They had faked themselves out into thinking they were God's man and they weren't. And I look at this story and I go, ha! I don't people like that. I can't stand people like that. I'm glad I'm not one of them. Oh, my goodness. I look at that and I go, I can see where I've been like that. I've judged people in my heart and mind by just how they look without getting to know them very well. Here's what, you know, I've been with people at church and not here, but, you know, you look at something like a VBS. And you say, we've done that program for 20, 25 years. Let's evaluate and see if it's really accomplishing the mission. 
if it's really what we do, if it's really doing what we want it to do and really reaching out, or it's become an in-reach thing. I've actually had that conversation, and I've had someone tell me, if you do anything with that, if you touch that, I'm leaving the church. That's a tradition in someone's eyes. They've begun to idolize. And then they would argue, well, it's because when I was little, it was through VBS that I was led to the Lord. Well, VBS didn't make you alive in Christ. The Holy Spirit did. And if it wasn't a VBS, it would have been something else because God was drawing you. Right? Amen? You know, I've even had someone come up to me at other churches and say, you don't wear a tie. You should wear a tie. Well, I had a suit on. I I normally did wear a tie. But during the summer, I wouldn't wear a tie. I kept the suit on, but just not the tie. And and people come to me and say, you're on, basically, you're out of the will of God. You're ungodly. It becomes a tradition. And we have many things like that, don't we? I just try to give you two little modern examples of what was going on even back then in Jewish circles. Must be the tie that binds. Oh, brother, that was, (laughs) wow. That was good. So. Let's go on to verses 29 through 34. 29 through 34. And this is the, I think, it's the real meat of this section here. It is here that John gives Jesus the title, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The next day, the next day, point number two, this, now Jesus, right out of the wilderness, he just got out of the, fresh out of the temptation, now comes to John, and, and John now sees him, coming to him, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's in that moment, somewhere in there, that he is baptized. The dove is, is rests upon him, manifesting to John the Baptist that he is the Christ, that he is the Lamb of God. He is the Son of God. You know, John knew that he was around, okay? But he didn't know specifically it was him. I mean, look at verse 31. I did not recognize him. Verse 33, I did not recognize him. He knew that he was alive, but he had not yet recognized him until this moment when he got baptized. And because God told him, I'm going to manifest him, I'm going to show you who it is when this dove comes upon him, and it was when he baptized him. And then John recognized him. You know, this title is completely new. Think about it for a minute. Lambs were used in the Old Testament sacrificial system. Plenty of lambs actually were used in the Old Testament sacrificial system, but none of them were called the Lamb of God. Now, by John identifying Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, giving him the title of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, he is now giving us more theology here. He's maturing our theology. He's giving a description to Jesus to help us understand his purpose and his mission. He's giving us the real deal upon which all the sacrificed lambs in the Old Testament pointed to the real deal. And what John the Baptist is saying, he's the real deal. He is the Lamb of God to whom all the other Old Testament sacrifices of all those lambs were pointing to for all these centuries. He's here. 
For example, the Passover lamb was offered. Once a year is a sin offering. Exodus 12, 12 and 13. You know, it commemorated what? Their deliverance out from Egypt. You remember that? And the blood of the lamb had to be put on the, the lintel of the doorpost, right? So that the angel of death would pass over them. Well, that was the blood of a lambs. The families had to sacrifice lambs for that. In Leviticus, there's lambs used for burn offerings and trespass offerings, sin offerings and guilt offerings. All these were pointing to the true and final lamb, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 7 says this, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. Remember, it's only he that can take away the sin of the world. And I want you to look at that phrase, sin of the world, for a moment. There, there are people more and more in evangelical circles and churches that say, oh, ultimately, everyone's going to be saved. It's universal salvation. And they try to use this verse as a proof text. No, 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 no. It contradicts so many other verses. What's the point of hell if everyone's going to get saved? It's just common sense, right? What about a passage like in chapter 1? He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. What about the call of John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not have, be perished, but have eternal life. What about later on in like chapter 10? You'll be familiar with this. Chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. There's another title. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, but he's not done. This teaching continues on later on in chapter 10 where he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they what? Follow me. They not only hear, they what? Follow. Let me say that again. A lot of people hear but only his true sheep actually follow. A hundred people will hear, but maybe only 20 will actually follow. And we're not talking about walking down an aisle on a Sunday morning or during evangelistic service. We're talking about take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross, and following Jesus Christ. You see that? In other words, in order to follow him, some things happen in our lives. Self-denial. Saying no to self. Deny yourself. I'm willing to suffer for you. When I say no to myself and yes to God's word, it means the world's going to look at me. Friends that I had will look at me and they'll go, I don't understand you anymore. You're very peculiar. I don't like hanging out with you anymore because you're becoming more and more different than I am. And then if we continue to follow Christ, We'll begin to suffer for it. That suffering could merely mean you're going to lose some friends or people you thought were your friends or people that were your friends because all you did was party with them. All you did was did what they wanted you to do and you were one with them. If you've come to Christ and you had a certain lifestyle, you, you're going to want to leave that lifestyle and you will count the cost of leaving that lifestyle and you know you're going to suffer for it. But you know what? The Jesus that is before you, the Jesus that you trust, you know that he is worthy. You know that he is worthy. It's made plain. 
Listen to this. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, out of the Father's hand. What's the point of the separation of the sheep and goat? No, 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 no. This is not a proof text back in chapter 1 for universal salvation. Who takes away the sin of the world. If I was a Jewish, and, and, and when I heard John the Baptist proclaim that, and I'm watching people get baptized, and I'm hearing the sin of the world, and I'm Jewish, I'm going to go, wait a minute. What about the Samarians, the Samaritans? They're half-breeds. They're half-Jew and half-Gentile. They're dirty people. He wouldn't include them, would he? And it'll just even get worse. What about all those Gentiles? They're even worse. Oh, certainly... That's what world would mean to them in that context. And so this is a shock. That means he came to die for people of all nations, tongues, and tribes, and people groups. So therefore, the mission is spread the gospel because you know that God is saving people from who speak every language in every nation all over the globe. And so when the Lamb of God came to give himself, that would include people throughout the world. That's what that means. This brings us to the twofold mission of the Lamb in our text. The substitutionary atonement for sin, we'll describe that in a minute, and the baptism of the Spirit. Let's look at the first one. I want you to look at substitutionary atonement. Okay? What that means, you know what a substitute, a substitute teacher. You go in there in a class, right? Ruthie, you know this. Yeah, there's the the real teacher. Sorry, Ruthie. (laughs) Illustrations fall. You know, they're not perfect, but they get the point across. You know, there's the real teacher, according to students. That's really our teacher. We better listen to her or we get in trouble. Now we have a substitute, right? Well, we're the real sinners, Jesus said, get out of the way. I'm going to be your substitute. But Jesus, you never sinned. You're perfect. And how appropriate it is to describe him as a lamb. Peter would call him unblemished, spotless lamb of God. You're perfect. You you don't deserve to get up on that cross. You don't deserve to have the Father's wrath poured upon you. I do. I'm the one. But he's their substitute. Because he knew we couldn't change ourselves. He knew we could not redeem ourselves. We could not atone for all of our wrongs. We could not do that. So he, why do you think he, why do you think the incarnation? Why do you think he came as man? Because he came to save men, sinners, women, sinners, children, sinners. So he took on their form to do just that. Listen to these verses. That means he became a self-sacrificing sin bearer. He, he, didn't bear, he didn't bear his sin. He bore your sin and your sin and my sin. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity. That means ours, us. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. 
1. He made him who knew no sin, as God made the Son who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. In other words, in the Greek it means God the Father treated Jesus Christ as if he was a sinner and crushed him because he saw my sin hanging on him. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And then 1 Peter, and I'll turn to 1 Peter. That's going to be 18, 19, and 20. Listen to these words. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, Jesus didn't come to earth, take over all the kingdoms, and become wealthier than Solomon so that he can take a boatload of gold and jewels and diamonds on a horse of chariots up to heaven to pay for our sin. No. Okay. You get the picture there. Verse 19. But with precious blood. You see, God saw Jesus' blood as precious blood. It satisfied him. With the precious, with pleasure, excuse me, but with precious blood as of a, there it is, a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Verse 20, it says in the very end, but he has appeared in these last days for the sake of you. He did it for you. Not only did he do it to glorify the Father, he did it to redeem you because he loved you. We're squirming in our sin, unable to do anything about it. And God had pity and mercy, and the Son had pity and mercy. And the Father said, go down there. I want you to deliver them. I have some of them prepared for you. I'm going to give them to you. You go down there, take on the form of a man, be treated just terribly and horribly. You will be rejected. They're going to deny who you are. Even your own people, the Jews, are going to say, no, you're not. You're not our Messiah. But son, I want you to get on that cross. I want you to bear their sin. And when you do that, my wrath is just going to be poured upon you. That's Jesus, our substitute. He took our place, bore our sin, suffered the wrath of God. But he also satisfied the wrath of God. That's why he's done sacrificing. That's why he rose from the dead, no longer to sacrifice anymore. See, in the Old Testament system of sacrifice, 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 because God was never satisfied with the blood of an animal. He was never sacrificed, by the way, with the blood of a man, but only the blood of the Son of God, he who is fully God and fully man. Isn't that beautiful? That brings us to verse 33. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, I'm back in the Gospel of John, I want to focus on the baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So I'm reading that verse. I want to begin to wrap up with that. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I really believe John says twice that I baptize in water. It's a baptism of repentance, which is also a baptism of cleansing, and it's an external baptism. It's to show, okay, you, you got that? He, he, to prepare the nation to come, that they had to repent from their traditions, the religious establishments, and their own good works. 
You see, when one comes to Christ, they not only repent for all the bad things they do, they repent from trusting in all the good things that they do, that they were dependent upon to be right before a holy God. So you repent of everything. You're undone. You realize, <laughs> ah, I'm a mess. I need help. And I can't help myself. Can't help myself. So what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, in John chapter 3, he talks about you must be born again. And that's the work of the Spirit, okay? He makes us alive unto Christ. Later on, the Holy Spirit's mentioned in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John. And it's all I've done. I looked where the Holy Spirit is also used. He's first time mentioned here in the Gospel in our text this morning. And I'm saying, how else, John, have you used him? What's the context in which you use the Holy Spirit? Go to chapter 14. 16 and 17. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. The first helper is Christ. He's the first comforter. He goes, well, I'm going to go, so I'm going to give you another helper. But notice in 17, he gives the Holy Spirit a title. And the title is truth. Look at it. That is the spirit of truth who the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you, you who I've chosen, you who have come to me, you who believed, you see him, you understand him, because he abides with you and will be in you. But the point is 17, look at the title given to him, the spirit of truth. Now go to chapter 16. The next time the Holy Spirit is mentioned, we're going to have something very consistent going on here. Verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth comes he will what guide you into all the truth he will teach he will guide so the holy spirit is used in reference to the truth of the person of jesus christ he later on is used in reference to the truths of god's word he will guide you to the bible because and he will convict you that in the bible i will find the truth of god because that is his truth and truth is not subjective Truth is objective. In other words, this book stands on its own. There, there, we rely on a truth that is outside of us. The world comes in. It's a little of apologetics right now. The world tells us, well, truth is whatever you feel right now. The truth is whatever you think right now. It's subjective. The truth is in you. Have you ever heard that before? The truth is in you. You just got to discover it. You just got to find it for yourself. No. No. The truth is outside of me. The truth is the Word of God. And the Spirit of God comes into us to convict us and to guide us, to teach us, to lead us, to convict us that this is the truth of God and I need this. Truth is not in me. Truth is the Bible. So John develops that. I I went through there. Notice the association of truth with the Holy Spirit. So when he baptizes us, Jesus, he he regenerates us and makes us alive to the truth. So now I have a hunger and thirst for the word of God. That is not natural. I was not born that way. I was reborn that way. Salvation, beloved, is a miracle. 
It is a work of God's sovereign grace. It's a work of the Spirit. And yes, we respond. We respond with hunger and thirst. This, this, this becomes something I gotta have because I'm hungry and I'm thirsting. This is my spiritual bread. My spiritual food. This is my sustenance for eternal life. I want to end by going to Hebrews 4. And we'll go to the book of Hebrews. Let's just go there. I want to give you, as you're turning to, start with Hebrews 4. Turn to Hebrews 4. I'm going to conclude with this. And this is going to be application. And this is really where it's going to be everyday, nitty-gritty, real-life stuff. And you're going to see this in just a couple of minutes. Because I want you to see how the substitutionary atonement, the, the Lamb of God, how it applies to us every day. Okay? Every day. And what it has to do with the Word of God. Okay? So, so please bear with me. So I'm going to paint a picture for us to walk out of this room with. Remember Ephesians chapter 5? Don't go there. It talks about husbands and wives. And that husbands are to what? What are they supposed to do to their wives? Love them. And how do they do that? Right? And what, what is the one thing they're supposed to do with the word? They cleanse them with the word. Their wives. Remember that? So the word of God has a cleansing effect. I think that's what it means being baptized by the Spirit. Of the Spirit. When you're born again, there's this cleansing effect. You're redeemed. That's cleansing. Christ took care of all your dirt, all your filth, all your sin. That's cleansing. You had that once for all done. You're clean. You're spotless. He died for all your sins you've committed in the past, today, present, and tomorrow. He's died for them all. And so we go to Hebrews chapter 4. And I hope I don't blow this. Is that on tape? Verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, now listen. And piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Notice the word of God is a two-edged sword. It cuts and wounds and it heals. It cuts and wounds and it heals. There's portions of God's word that will cut and wound me. It's called the law. The part that heals me is the Lamb of God who takes away my sin. The law tells me I'm a sinner. The law teaches me I sin. Even as a believer, I get, I get into the commands in the New Testament. There's more New Testament commands than Old Testament. Or I go to the law in the Old Testament. I go to these things and I go, Okay, I'm doing pretty good here. Well, I didn't mess that one up today. You know, whatever. And you look along and you go, man, that hurts. I've blown it. I just didn't blow it years ago. I blew it today. I've already blown it this morning. You know, we blow it every day, right? Just say yes. And so I look at God's word and the aspects of his law and his commands and I go, ouch, that wounds. That's one side of the sword. And then I go to other portions of Scripture that tell me about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of my sins. He, he's forgiven me, and that's what heals me. Beloved, that's an everyday experience by God's grace. 
That's an everyday truth we are to live by. Let me show you that. Go to chapter 9. Go to chapter 9. You're going to love this. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So you have in the Old Testament this earthly tabernacle, this earthly temple, where the, the priests would go in and offer the lambs and, and goats and, and even birds sometimes, okay, if they couldn't afford you know, other things. They didn't have herds. They would you know, they offer what they could, and all that's written in Leviticus in detail. But anyway, they, they would do that, okay? But here we read there's another tabernacle located in heaven. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater... He didn't go through the earthly tabernacle. He didn't go through the earthly temple. When he did his priestly service, he did it in heaven before his father. He entered through the greater, more perfect tabernacle. That's what I mean, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In other words, when the Father raised him from the dead, he earned eternal redemption, therefore did not have to be sacrificed again. Because God was pleased with him the first time. And it lasts for all eternity. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, he's thinking outwardly, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, here it is, cleanse your conscience, an internal cleansing from dead works to serve the living God. What do you mean by this? What are you getting at? There is a cleansing of the conscience, a cleansing of the inner man when we sin. And it's a work of the Spirit. Let me conclude by this. Go to chapter 10. Because in verse 15, the Holy Spirit's mentioned. Hebrews chapter 10. What I'm talking about is the work of the Spirit. And these verses are going to put it together for you. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, verse 16, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, he's referring now to the new covenant, what will he do? I will put my laws upon their heart. How will the Holy Spirit testify, verse 15, to us? Number one, by writing God's law on my heart, writing his word on my heart, writing his commands, New Testament, on my heart. When he does that, when the Holy Spirit does that, that's an ouch. That, that when he does that, it's convicting, and it messes with my conscience. It becomes guilty. But, beloved, that's a good thing. But here is also what he does simultaneously or right in that mix when we are crying out to God as his children because of sin in our lives. Notice what else the Holy Spirit does. Verse 17, he then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Here's the law. Here are my commands. 
I know they sting you. I know they point out sin in your life. But then the Holy Spirit says, but I want to remind you, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. Where sin is, grace abounds all the more. When I look at the law, I discover where sin is in my life. But then when I look to the cross, when I look to the Lamb of God, I see that grace abounds all the more. And that's why you have verse 18. Now, where, now, now, look at verse 18. Look at the first word, now. Not later on. Not once you get to heaven. Now. That's very, that one three letter word is so important. He's saying, now this happens. Now you go through this. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. What are you doing? You, you go to the law. You go to the commands. You know, you're having your devotions. And it, maybe it's out of loving your wives. And you, you, I failed. Cut stings. I'm a crumb. I, I, I failed miserably. I really blew it. Or I'm a wife who's not been loving my husband. Or with my kids. You know, or at work. Right? You're in God's word. You, it stings, doesn't it? Well, praise God. That's that one side of that double-edged sword, right? But here's where people go wrong. Here's where Christians often really make a bad mistake. When, when, when sin is revealed in their lives, they run away from God. God's word says, no, I want you to run to me. And in Jesus, you can run to me. I want, if you run to Jesus, you're running to me. And I'm right here for you. And by, by the way, when you run to Jesus, he's not dealing with you from an earthly tabernacle. He's in my presence in the heavenly one I made. And he will say, you're forgiven. So confess your sin. Go confess it to the Father. Go confess it if you hurt. Get it right. Brush yourself off and move forward in Christ. Beloved, sometimes you do that every day. Praise God. Mothers. That's how the Lord Jesus wants you to live every day. We cannot begin, whether you're a father, a mother, you're in school, no matter what your age, if you are a born-again Christian, stop measuring your success by looking at other people. Look to Christ. Look to His Word. The Spirit will say, hey, Get to my word, and in this portion, it's going to sting. But then I'm right there alongside you to say, look to the Lamb of God. He will heal you. Let me conclude with this. Go back to the, well, I'm going to just go back to the Gospel of John. Because this is so beautifully pictured in chapter 13. Uh, listen to this, verse 10. We're in the upper room. Jesus is washing their feet. Peter goes, oh, no, don't wash my feet. You know, oh, no, no, no. I'm too humble for that. You're too great for that. And Jesus says, listen, dude, if I don't wash your feet, you're going to be unclean. Oh, wash me, wash me, wash me. You know, Peter, just up and down, you know. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, listen to this. He who hath bathed needs only to wash his feet. Why? But it's completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. But not all of you refers to Judas. But what he's saying is this. When you come to Christ, he cleans you whole. 
He cleans you whole. But when you're living in this world on a day-to-day basis, you get your feet dirty. Sin. And he says, just come to me. You're wholly clean. I've forgiven you for all the sins you've ever committed. But on a daily basis, I want to wash your feet. I don't need to wash you all over again. You're saved. You're redeemed. You're clean. You're whole. I just want to love you on a daily basis. And, and, and on a daily basis, you're, you're going to get some dirt. You're going to get your feet dirty. And so what I want you to do is come to me and I will cleanse you. Because you're going to struggle on a daily basis. You're going to struggle with sin. You're going to suffer. You see, this is so intimate, isn't it? It doesn't get more intimate than this. God's saying, first of all, I took care of you and you're mine. But I want you to stay in the world for a while. But as you're there, your feet are going to get dirty. And I just want you to come to me. In other words, it's Jesus who cleanses me whole. And it's also Jesus who will love me and cleanse me on a daily basis through his word. Praise be to God. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Those are the words from Revelation 4 and 5. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, if we're hurting right now, things in our life just seem to be totally topsy-turvy, upside down. God, we, we know we always get our feet dirty. That does not mean we are not clean. It just needs means we need to be loved. And, and, and Father, you love on us by saying, just confess your sin. Swallow the pride. Humble yourself. You know you did wrong, and just tell me about it. And God, you want us in prayer to tell you about it. You don't want us running away from you. You want us to run to you to tell us, that, to tell you that we've done wrong. And so, that's how the word begins to develop our conscience and, and softens it and sensitizes it towards sin so that we're more and more ready to confess it when we do it. But we do it knowing, dear God, that the blood of the Lamb has covered us. As John the Baptist says, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Jim Pittman, the sin of fill in your name in that blank, brother and sister. God, this is the nitty-gritty everyday walk with Christ. So intimate, so beautiful, so Christ-exalting. And so, Father, I pray these wonderful word of, words of life this morning would be refreshing to every soul in this room. Help us to walk in these truths. Help us to experience the beautiful daily grace that you have for us in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.